Before I pray, let me just say, I am so excited about this topic. I am absolutely so excited about this topic for two reasons. Um, one, uh, I am... First, I am. First off, I hear all the time that people this sense of despair, the sense of hopelessness, the sense of like we're out of control, tons of stress, tons of burden, and um, and I just really think that the gospel, uh, the gospel is freedom, and that if if you know Christ and you know the gospel, then you are empowered to say no. You're empowered to cut against the grain. Uh, of this madness of, of overscheduling. So that's, that's one reason I'm really excited, because I think there's a ton of freedom to be offered. The second reason I'm very excited is because I am a child who is totally a, I hate to use this word, but I'm really kind of a victim of this whole overscheduling kind of deal. I, I was, uh, you know, a, an eight-year-old, ten-year-old boy who did two swim practices a day in the summer, and then did two baseball practices a day, and then went to golf clinic, and um, did... Oh, my senior year was five AP classes. I taught myself an AP class. I wrote for the newspaper. I was the vice president of the student body, the vice president of the honor society. I was on the state board of the key club, and I swam like six practices a day, about 13 to 15,000 yards a day. And uh, I would go from five, I'd get up at like 4.50, go to practice at five. I'd fall asleep at 11.30 on my homework most nights. And I basically had a nervous breakdown when I was 23 years old because that was the life that I'd always lived, and it's just not sustainable. It's miserable. And so the gospel totally set me free. And, I mean, now I'm very balanced. I don't overschedule at all. <laughs> but, um, but no, my, my life was, I didn't realize it in the midst of it, but I was really a miserable person until I really kind of, uh, until I knew the gospel of grace and the freedom of the gospel. And so uh, every season of life before that, early childhood, middle school, college, high school, was all miserable. And uh, every season after that, it's been great. I mean, early 20s, marriage, young kids. I mean, difficult, but pretty, I'm like, yeah, that was a good season, but none before. So, so anyhow, so I have, I am particularly passionate about this. So, um, I'm going to pray for us and we'll get going. All right, Lord, um, I pray, uh, pray your Holy Spirit would rule here. We, we proclaim you Christ as, as, uh, as King and we pray, Lord, that you would speak and that, uh, nothing that I have to say would come out, but only what you have to say would, would come through. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk out of here encouraged, hopeful, and feeling like free people. Nasty spirits in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, so this Faith and Family series, this is the first of six installments. We're going to do this the third Wednesday of every month, uh, September, October, November, January, February, March. And there are two reasons we're doing this series. First, we... Um, First, you know, the, the point of the church is to make disciples, to make people who follow Jesus and, and, and live for his glory. Um, and so that's the point of our youth ministry. We want to cultivate kids who have a deep belief system grounded in the gospel and in scripture such that they stick with, with Christ and the church after high school. Um, but that usually doesn't happen. 70% of the kids who go through a youth ministry do not stick with the church or you know, the church after high school. They, they abandon the church. So youth ministry has really been an epic failure. And so the research that has come back on uh, why youth ministry has been so ineffective, um, the, the first major factor is the theology of youth ministry. It's usually shallow. It's usually um, legalistic. And, uh, and it's has no substance and has no gospel, no grace. And so it's kind of like, why well, there's really nothing to embrace if it's 
shallow in its rules and its just entertainment. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is they've identified that churches have done a very poor job of partnering with parents and helping equip parents for the discipleship of their own children. Uh, Churches have been happy to let people drop their kids off at church and say, we got it, we got it from here. And rather than saying, we're in this together, partnering and helping people uh, translate what they're learning in church, how that translates to being a parent. And so um, so that this is part of an, an effort in us continuing like to partner with families and uh, the discipleship of their children with the hope that they'll follow Jesus when they're out of the nest. So that's why we're doing this. Now, caveats. By the way, I'm going to be working from this little sheet here, Faith and Family. Um, yeah, if you don't have one, you'll probably need one. Um, so caveats, whenever we do um, a talk about parents, you have to have, I mean, about parenting, you have to have a thousand caveats because everyone feels so inadequate and um, like they're failing so much. And, um, you know, to, uh, to, to be a parent is to be humiliated. It's true. Uh, and it's true. I came, into, I came into parenthood with a very high level of confidence because I've been a swim coach and I have a master's in education. I've been a teacher. And I've been a youth minister, right? So if anyone has the tools, it would be me. Let me just say, it has been one of the more daily humiliating experiences of my entire life. Uh, it, is, it really has been. So um, we, whenever we talk about parenting, we have to start with the gospel that, yeah, of course we're inadequate. Our children were meant to live in the Garden of Eden with perfect parents, and um, we're just we're not equipped, and that's why our kids really need a heavenly father uh, as their primary guide in their life. And so, so that's caveat number one. Um, caveat number two, uh, it, it says here in uh, Luke 2:52, and Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. Uh, Alistair Begg, who's a theologian and pastor, he kind of uh, he kind of divides parenting into four categories. And he looks at Jesus, how Jesus as a boy, how he grew, and it says he increased in wisdom. So he, he, he grew intellectually. Uh, he grew in stature, that's physical development. Uh, he grew in favor with God, so that he had spiritual development. And he grew in favor with man, so he had like social and relational development as a person. And so um, understand that you as a parent and trying to, wanting to see your child do well in school, wanting to see your child have a group of friends and be connected, um, wanting to you know, encourage your kid to exercise or do sports or whatever that may be, dance, um, and wanting your child to be developed spiritually, you're, you're, what you're doing is biblical. Like That's a good thing. We can have very much a throw out the baby with the bathwater of it's just all spiritual and that's all that matters. But, I mean, Jesus himself grew in these four categories. So, you know, be comforted that what you're, what you, you know, your hopes for your kids, for them to develop completely, that's a biblical hope. Um, and then the last uh, last caveat is Christ is one you can you can chill out. And it's real. It's true. Jesus, you know, Jesus has conquered the only a list problem we have: sin and death. Uh, he's done that in the in his life, death, and resurrection. So, in all that, because Jesus is one and because God's sovereign, we we really can chill out. So, all right. So the way the structure of this talk is, we're going to look at some of the social um, social psychology factors in this kind of phenomenon of overscheduling. It's a phenomenon about the last 30 years. Um, research kind of started a little bit in the mid-80s on it, and um, it has gotten worse and worse. The, the, it has amplified increasingly over the last 30 years. Right now, there is a ton of research on it. Uh, so there's, there's a lot to be said. So we're going to look at the, that, look at it from that angle. Then we're going to look at John 10, which is a scripture that I think addresses a lot of the core underlying theological issues behind this kind of complex of, of overbooking. And then we'll kind of talk about the practical applications of that and how, how, they, how that gives us freedom 
um, in, in this kind of hectic world. And then we're going to have a little panel at the end of, you know, I, I've got a lot of a lot of experience as a parent, you know, three whole years as of uh, yesterday. Uh, so I may be ugly, but I'm not stupid. I have some ugly, I have some uh, people who with a lot more wisdom than me. And we're going to ask them some questions to kind of uh, start off some like conversation about this. So that's uh, that's the structure. So um, what are the roots of over scheduling? Um, this. Uh, there's a, there's a, a scholar, his name's David Elkin, he's at Tufts University. Back in the 1980s, he was kind of the pioneer of starting to study this trend of kids being, uh, having, you know, lots and lots of extracurricular activities, athletics, tutors, ACT coaches, uh, you know, this, that, and the other, all of it mostly focused on building a resume to get into a good college. And so he started to examine what was going on, and he saw that, um, he coined this term called child competence. He saw that there was kind of a shift in the uh, paradigm for parenting, where parents started to see their primary role as a parent uh, as uh, being uh, preparing their child for success in the market economy. Uh, a soundbite, I, I know a parent uh, growing up who would say often, uh, you know, my job as a parent is to produce a productive, um, solid citizen for the world. Okay, well, that, that you know that's not a bad thing, right? We want our kids. To, we don't want our kids living in the gutter. Um, but when you break it down, like that, that says a lot. A productive, solid citizen. So basically, someone who can hold down a job and be a contributor in, in the economy. And so, with that being said, if that was, if that's kind of the paradigm for what is good parenting, um, then everything that we do, um, if that's our belief, everything we do is gonna kind of be driven by that. And so that's where this starts to come out. And so some quotes here. This is from um, The Hurried Child. Uh, this is actually the third edition of The Hurried Child. The first edition was like in 1985. But um, Elkin says, many of the problems that I described in the preface to the second edition have only gotten worse. The concept of child competence, which drove much of the hurrying of childhood in previous decades, is very much alive today. Parents are under more pressure than ever to overschedule their children and have them engage in organized sports and other activities that may be age inappropriate. Um, so there he uses that terminology, uh, child competence, this hurrying children. You, know, you think about children with, um, uh, and listen, I, I don't want to say this judgmentally. So if you're, if you're, uh, if your kid is in this situation, I'm, I'm not being critical. But you know, we think about seven-year-old girls having AAU basketball teams. That's, you know, that's maybe a little much for a seven-year-old. Um, or uh, I know someone who they talked about their summer and about how they were on the baseball field with their child at least once a day for the for 50 straight days. And, you know, and I've forgotten how old their child was, and I asked him, and his child is seven, and they were having two practices a day as you know for seven-year-olds. Um, so that's that's pretty intense, you know, for a kid that's maybe four years removed from potty training. Um, so. <laughs> So anyhow, so, so you, you see that, and, and you can identify that with the hurried child. Hurried says so much as far as the pace, like, come on, we've got to get to the next thing, like, get in the car, let's go. Um, or hurried to, like, maybe doing things that they're not developmentally ready for. All right, so next thing, uh, next quote here, David Elkin in Ties That Stress, The New Family Imbalance, he says, like all those needs that are not being met over the long term, postmodern children and adolescents are feeling victimized. They feel that they must suppress their own needs for security and protection to accommodate their parents and society's expectations that they be independent and autonomous. 
And so uh, what he starts to, to tap into here, and we'll see this as we go through, is that um, a lot of uh, children's needs for nurture and for security and support are being compromised because we kind of have them operating like little CEOs throughout elementary school and junior high and so on and so forth. And, um, and this, this is kind of this uh, trend that he identifies or result he identifies is kind of reinforced here by what Chap Clark says in this book, Hurt, Inside the World of, of Today's Teenagers. Chap Clark, he's, a, he's actually he's a believer. He's a Christian who did youth ministry. He's a Ph.D. psychologist at Fuller Theological Seminary. And um, he starts to kind of um, offer different terminology instead of the hurried child. Uh, he, he, you'll see what he says here. He says, I agree with Elkin's findings in the hurried child. However, I prefer to use the label abandoned rather than hurried. Uh, as Ron Powers and many others note, adolescents have a longing that parents, teachers, and other adults have ceased as a community to fulfill. The reasons are many and varied. The reasons are many and varied, but this concept of systematic abandonment of adolescents as a people group seems to capture the widest range of descriptors used by careful observers of adolescents and adolescents themselves. So now he, he does identify other factors of um, why children feel so kind of emotionally starved and lonely, isolated and disconnected. He looks at uh, parents who have lots of work demands on them or um, family structures, so on and so forth. But he identifies the primary... Uh, primary cause of kids feeling like this as they are so overbooked, so overscheduled, and there's so much concentration on their performance rather than kind of their th them as a person, so to speak. So this is uh, this is you know just a little bit of qualitative information about uh, you know overscheduling and its effects and, and what's kind of driving it. I think a great question. This is a Gilcracky question. Uh, as we continue with this, is to, to ask the question, like, what are, what are we so afraid of? Like, why are we so afraid? Like, if Johnny doesn't play seventh grade football, if Sally doesn't have the ACC tutor, um, what's, what's going to happen? You know, there is, there's just so much fear. And so that's just something to think of as we kind of go into this next section. Now, this next section, it may scare you a little bit. <laughs> Um, it may scare you a little bit, and so let's, let's remember that God is still sovereign as we read this, but um, this is now some of the more recent research on the effects, particularly the mental health effects, um, of all this overscheduling. Now, and I'll say this in here, but understand, over, this overscheduling phenomenon is primarily a suburban, upper middle class, and affluent deal. You don't see it quite as much in like a lower middle class setting or an impoverished setting. It's more of, it's more of like a, an affluent suburban deal. Um, but anyhow, so first off, it says most studies qual uh, quantify an overscheduled child as one with eight to ten hours of extracurricular activities. Um, that, is, uh, th that is a little bit of my interpretation and in the studies that I read in preparation for this. To qualify for the sample set as an overbooked kid, you needed to have eight to ten hours of, ac of extracurricular activities. Per week. To, that per week. That's per week, yeah. Per week. So, um, so man, I think some kids have to do eight to ten hours of, of, of weights just for football, much less practice and film study. Anyhow. All right. The average American teenager today demonstrates higher anxiety levels than the average psychiatric patient of the 1950s. That's, that's pretty intense, yo. Um, all right, next, the two primary variables causing mental health issues in overscheduled children appear to result from the natural stress from the pressure of high activity 
and a reduced amount of leisure time with family leading to a sense of disconnectedness and a lack of intimacy. So there's the natural stress of being a, you know, someone who is gunning from 7 in the morning till 10 at night, plus how that takes you away from, you know, leisure time and just, you know, relational time with your parents and your family. So two factors there. Um, now, uh, and by the way, think about how much, how many of your nights are hijacked by activities. I, I'm not, no need to identify what school, but for one school, if you play varsity, junior varsity football, you have a game on Monday night, then you have position dinner, because God, how could we play football without our position group having dinner together on Wednesday night? Then you have pregame meal on Thursday night, and then you have a football game on Friday night. So the statement is, is that four nights out of your week are dinner with a football team, maybe you can get those other three with your family. So that just that, that's just a descriptor of the culture. Sure. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, well, hold on. We'll, I promise. I promise we'll address that at the end. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I got. I got. Uh, well, there's some building blocks to how you come to that decision because that really is the question. Like, what do I do? You know, like, what do we say no to? What do we say yes to? Okay. But I promise. I have. There. There. We'll. We're. Gonna, we're building up to that crescendo. <laughs> it will be practical. I promise. Okay. Um, so next, uh, overscheduled children can demonstrate a wide range of stress-related symptoms, including insomnia, stomach aches, headaches, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. Um, we can skip that. I've already covered that. Um, next, um, well, I will say on that last one how it's this is a suburban thing. The bottom line articulation or justification for why parents do this is college acceptance. That, I mean, we know that just anecdotally from you know, the, the high-pressured talk when your child's in the third grade about you got to take advanced math in the, th- in the fourth grade or you're going to have to take zero-period math in the seventh grade and then your kid can't take BC math, which means they're going to be on food stamps and, and in a gutter one day, right? So by darn, it's fourth grade, get your kid in advanced math, right? Uh, anyhow, but college acceptance tends to be the driver. That's so funny. It sounds like I'm telling a joke, but that's really, that's really the talk that everyone gets. Um, Sorry if I'm a little bit passionate about this. <laughs> okay, um, next. Um, okay, this will blow your mind. Studies suggest that overscheduled suburban kids demonstrate higher levels of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse than kids living in poverty in at-risk communities. All right, so in a community where you may have, like, violence, gunshots, living in poverty, not knowing where your next meal is, those kids tend to have, on average, better mental health than kids who live in suburban uh, areas and who are overscheduled. Kind of scary. All right, next. Now, this is this is really interesting, and this is one to listen up to. Studies also suggest that kids with limited after-school supervision and a little in- parental encouragement to pursue extracurricular activities are one of the most at-risk groups for issues with substance abuse. So, you know, there's the other end of it. I mean, I hear parents say a lot, and it's and it's reasonable. You know, I just want to keep them out of trouble. You know, I want to keep them busy. And, uh, and there, is, there is some truth that, like, as a parent, you do want to identify your kid's gifts. You do want to encourage him or her to use those gifts, you know, and to, to exercise them and be active. So there's, there's something good in that. Um, and so that that's, that's a, should be a little bit of a comfort there. Um, 
Now, the last one, this is interesting. It's this last one, these last three stats come from a study that the National Institute of Health commissioned uh, that was completed in 2008. And um, they wanted basically the, the top scholar in this right now is a woman named uh, Sunya Luther at, at Teachers College Columbia. And she um, basically wanted her to unpack. They, everyone had identified links between mental health issues and overscheduled kids. But they wanted, um, they wanted uh, her and her team to identify what are some of the variables within it. And here's what they came away with. They came away with kids who are overscheduled do have a slightly higher susceptibility to mental, to, you know, mental health issues, particularly uh, substance abuse. But the kids who are most at risk, like statistically off the charts at risk for substance abuse in particular, are kids who are overbooked and the child perceives that the parents are measuring the results of their performance. So if a child, and especially if they think that their parent will criticize them or punish them if they're not, uh, if they're not um, achieving at a high level. So that right there, where they said the, the child who is going to have the most issues is the child is overscheduled and they feel like their parent is evaluating their performance. And you know, honestly, I think that can go both ways. I mean, even if a parent kind of overdoes when a child succeeds, they overdo the celebration. Which, you know, hey, we all want to celebrate, right? I mean, when baby Cam like finally got potty training down, I mean, there were backflips in our house and might have uncorked some champagne, might have happened. But, <laughs> but, um, uh, but anyhow, but you know, there is a there's a balance there, and even there, even if we're so overexcited, it can communicate to the child like, mommy and daddy are watching my performance. Um, so, so anyhow, so, so that gives you a little bit of a picture on. Uh, you know, from a social psychological standpoint, what this what this looks like and what some of the effects are. Okay, so now, good news, right? Um, what we're going to look at here is uh, John chapter 10, and um, what you know, I just think that John chapter 10 captures a lot of the um, or addresses a lot of the theological uh, issues that are below. Um, this complex of, of overscheduling. And so um, let me read it here. Okay. Now, if, before I get started here, a couple of things to keep in mind as I read this. First, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. That's, that's the audience of this, of this kind of metaphor or this, this parable. Um, so that's, that's who he's talking to. And you know, the, the Pharisees, they uh, espoused a system of theology that was works righteousness. It was performance-based Christianity. There's no grace. It's all up to you. So that's, that's his audience. And then um, another thing, too, is when he talks about the thief, I, for a long time, I thought the thief is referring to Satan. And, and implicitly, you could say that. But he's really, the thief that he's referring to are the Pharisees uh, in this context. Um, so, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheephold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus, so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is hired. He is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life. I lay down my life for the sheep. Um, Okay, I'm going to stop there at verse 15. Okay, so um, the the bottom line of this is going to be that uh, Christ sets us free from obligation. Christ sets us free from feeling bonded, like we have to. We have to. Everyone does this. We have to do this. Um, the, you know, the, the kind of fruit of the gospel is freedom. And so, so with this text, um, and I promise this is going to sound, uh, uh, this, like the exegetical context stuff I'm going to give you, it does have relevance. We are going to get back to overscheduling. We're going to take a little trip to the ancient Near East for a second. Um, so first, you know, Jesus says, um, the, the kind of context of the shepherding here in the first six verses is Jesus is basically uh, shepherding sheep in a small village. Okay, and so the way it, the deal was with sheep, we all, we all probably know sheep are really, really dumb, um, and sheep are defenseless. They don't really have any way to defend themselves. And, and, you know, and where people are compared to sheep in the Bible more than you know, any other animal. So that says a lot about us. But understand this, sheep are also really, really valuable. Uh, sheep, you could get milk from sheep. You can make cheese from the milk. You can drink the milk. They also provided uh, wool for clothing. So we are defenseless and we are pretty stupid, but we are incredibly valuable. And uh, not 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 you know. And, and we see the value that Christ communicates in, in the way He talks about laying down His life for the sheep. But the way it would work in a, in a small village, everyone kind of had a sheep or two. All right, that was just kind of staple. No matter what your socioeconomic status, you had a couple of sheep. And so it didn't make sense for you to stay up every night and watch your sheep. So what they would do is they'd have kind of a community uh, community corral where they were um, where they would put all the sheep and they would alternate as families. They would take turns on who would guard the sheep that night. So, you know, uh, you know, uh, Johnny, my son, he might go down and he's going to watch the sheep tonight, but Bobby, your son, he's going to go take it on Thursday night and so on and so forth. And so you had all the sheep from the village all there together each night, right? Well, here's the deal. The sheep kind of look alike. And they had, to, they had to find a way for, uh, you know, for a shepherd to get his sheep out of this, this herd that was all together. So each shepherd would have uh, his own call for his own sheep. They'd either have like a musical instrument, like a flute or something that they would play, and the sheep would recognize, oh, that's my master. I'm going to come out of the flock, and I'm going to come to him. Uh, or they would have like a, a call, and the most common is they'd have a nickname for him. Um, so uh, as I said earlier this morning, my sheep, I might call my sheep Whitey. Like, hey, Whitey, you know, it's time to go. And he would know his name, right? And so he would come out from the flock, and he would follow me because I'm going to take him to the pasture. Because, you know, the where they kept the sheep was not, was not in the pasture. It was in the town. There's no food, water for them there. So every day, sheep comes down, calls the sheep by name. The sheep know, you know, they recognize his voice because they, they know the shepherd, and they walk out, and they go to the pasture, okay? So, so that's, that's one thing, you know, as far as, there's this intimate relationship between the sheep and the shepherd, like Jesus with us. All right, so second thing here, Jesus, um, Jesus identifies himself as the door. During the summer, they would stay out in the pasture. They'd build a little rock uh, structure, a little fortress, as Baby Cam might refer to it. And, um, and, but it had to have an opening, right? And so when they were in the pasture, the shepherd had to, um, 
would guard the sheep by sleeping in the door. Uh, and so if a wolf or something was going to come, they couldn't get over the, the wall. They would have to actually climb over the shepherd to get to the sheep. So, so the shepherd literally was laying down his life to protect his sheep. And, um, and the shepherd uh, was you know, that kind of first line of defense. So, so really, uh, you know, if you're thinking that, that there's a wolf or something like that, the shepherd really is putting himself in danger for the sake of the sheep. Okay? So, so you have that going on too. So basically, we, we've identified this intimacy of relationship that Christ calls us to. The sheep-shepherd relationship where we know his voice and we follow him to pasture. Um, we've identified that this, this shepherd is good. Like this shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Well, we know through the cross that Christ is willing to lay down his life for us. That speaks the value that Christ has for us. And then the third thing here is this contrast between what the thief has to offer versus what the good shepherd has to offer. The thief comes to rob and to kill and to destroy. Now, I mean, let me ask you this. Do you feel like your family your joy, like your sense of peace and rest, do you oftentimes feel hijacked? Like, do you feel robbed? Um, and, you know, I hear that all the time. People are like, I, I, want, I want to have a family dinner every night, but my kid has to go to this, that, and the other. Ballets at this time, and, you know, we want to do something on the weekend, but so-and-so's off at the swim meet, or so-and-so's off at the competitive soccer tournament or the lacrosse tournament. And so... Um, so anyhow, the, the message that the Pharisees taught, which is law, all law, performance-based religion, uh, it, it robs, it kills, it destroys. Okay? But then what Jesus has to offer, um, which is life, he says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And then on top of that, where does the good shepherd say that he leads the sheep? He leads them into pasture, you know? Pasture is a place where there's food, where there's, there's safety and there's some protection. They're, they're in an open area. They can see, uh, you know, any predators or any threats. Um, and it's, it's open. It's kind of free. So there are two different things that are being offered. And so now we've covered that. How does this now apply to, um, how does this apply to overscheduling? Um, first, uh, this, this whole um, matter of overscheduling, from my perspective, what I hear is tons and tons of obligation and a sense of needing to measure up. So, you know, I if I'm a, if I'm really a good parent, then my child will excel in school and will do well in sports and will have extracurricular activities and will advance to an extraordinarily expensive private school or at least be in the honors program at a college. And anyhow, there's, so there's this sense of like obligation. I have to, like, you have to play seventh grade football, right? I mean, we have to get the ACC tutor. By the way, I think that's terrible money spent. That's just my opinion, but that's for another day. Sorry, Tori, I know you own the ACT prep place in Cabo Heights. Love you. And sorry, Cousin Andy, I know you're a partner in that business. Sorry, on recorded. Anyhow, but anyhow, so I'm just saying there's this sense of like, well, we just have to, right? We have to do these things. Um, and like... The gospel says, no, you don't have to, no. The only thing you have to do is follow Jesus, right? So the law, which, again, that's a theological fancy term for, for operating out of performance and obligation, the law uh, is defined by a sense that you're inadequate and that you must measure up, or a sense that your child is inadequate and your child needs to measure up. And it's up to you. Under the law, it's all on you. It's your responsibility. You have to depend on yourself, okay? That's law.
Um, and consequently, you have this pendulum of self-righteousness or shame. When Johnny's making great grades and Johnny's um, uh, you know, uh, starting on the football team or one of the 15 people gets to play or whatever it may be, uh, we you know, look, I'm doing, I'm doing a pretty good job, right? Um, but then when it's not working out, Johnny makes bad grades. Johnny, Johnny might have to go to junior college, God forbid. We feel shame. We feel a sense of failure. And that's the law. The law never, it's always vacillating between arrogance and guilt. All right? And so, anyhow, I think that that is the norm. I think with this overbooking, I think that's the norm. I, you know, I, I, my, I'm inadequate. My child's inadequate. We must do these things to measure up. And that is contrary to the gospel. Okay? Now, here's what the gospel says. And this is the good news. The gospel says, uh, by the way, isn't it cool that, like, this stuff is not just fancy religious stuff to learn and feel more intellectual about? Like, the, the gospel is where the rubber meets the road, you know? Like, we're talking about overscheduling, and the most relevant thing is what Jesus did on the cross. That's pretty cool. That's just my opinion. Side note. You got that for free, right? Um, okay. Uh, the gospel is characterized by an acceptance that you fall short and are not personally capable of measuring up. So it's like, yeah, of course I'm inadequate. Like, my child was meant to be parented in the Garden of Eden. Like, I'm a sinner. I've got all kinds of selfish junk going on and all kinds of baggage. Of course I don't measure up. And that's why Jesus died. You know, it, that's uh, my adequacy is in Jesus thought enough of me to die on the cross for me. And God was just loved me so much that he was generous enough to give me the righteousness that Jesus earned in a perfect life, making me perfectly acceptable irrespective of performance. So that's the gospel. I measure up through Christ. My child measures up through Christ. And we, we, don't, we don't need to feel any sense of obligation to do anything to add to that. If, if uh, Sally or Johnny um, are terrible athletes and they just play the rec league basketball and they take all regular classes and shoot, they may even need to take a remedial class and, you know, they're going to be a welder. Hey, you know, that's okay because, you know what, they're acceptable. They're acceptable through Christ. Um, so so that's, that's, you know, we measure up through Christ. The gospel says that we depend on God's grace to measure up. So uh, it's, it's not up to us. It's us constantly depending on the grace of the Holy Spirit to help us. And then um, finally, the fruit of the gospel is freedom, peace, relief. That's the fruit of the gospel. And so, um, and so consequently, that sets us free to cut against the grain of the culture and to say no. Um, you know, if everyone says that you have to do X, Y, and Z, you can say, I don't have to do anything. Like, the, you know, Jesus has set me free from having to buy into what suburban culture says I have to do. And, not to be too extreme, but, you know, the, the norm of the culture is usually destructive. Like, the norm of the culture usually, usually you know, makes us empty and stressed and miserable. Um, so, anyhow, so, the gospel sets us free to say no. Point number one. All right, point number two. Uh, and by, hey, by the way, what a, what, well, sorry, I'll get to that in a second. Point number two, uh, life. All right, here's the deal. What do we really want for our kids? We really want our kids to be content. We want satisfied children who are healthy and who are content with their life. That's really what we want for our kids. And what we, the, what the culture communicates is 
that what will satisfy my child is to be successful, to be smart, to go to a good college, to get a good job, to make a, a good living, and to have a comfortable suburban lifestyle. That is what will make them content. Okay? Um, that is not what will make us content. Like, I was superstar. I told you my, my little accolades. I was superstar student in, in high school and college and graduate school. I was totally miserable. Totally miserable. I was not content. And, and it was the gospel. It was, I, I mean, I was a Christian. I was a Christian who had no concept of what grace was. And so um, what is going to, and what Jesus says here in John 10, what is going to make your, give your child life is to live in an intimate, dependent relationship with Christ. That's what's going to make your child content. Following God into whatever it is that we're called to. And so we need to continue to fight against it. Because look, I, I'm, I'll just tell you, I, I am... I'm as bad as anyone as far as making my own dreams for my child. Like every, you know, he's going to succeed in areas I didn't succeed. He's going to be better than I was. And I, you know, I really do think I, I really do think the same thing that if he is, you know, very successful, then it's all going to work out for him. And we just have to continually repent and walk in the truth that what's going to satisfy him is Jesus. Okay. And the last one, this is the most important one. And this is this is going to get to your question. Uh, we're going to get even more practical after this, but this is going to get to the heart of your question. Uh, you know, the nature of this relationship that is described in John 10 is a sheep-shepherd relationship where the sheep listens to the good shepherd and the sheep follows the shepherd to the place that the shepherd leads. Okay? This is, um, this is kind of practically what I think is, is the answer is for us to, excuse me, to listen, to pray about and discern with our children what your child is called to do. Um, to, uh, to, to know that like God is going to call your, your child to different places. And, you know, it really may be, uh, I know a, one parent who may or may not be in the room, that travel soccer is something exceptionally good for this family's child. And that's what this child is called to right now. And that may mean that he misses some, some other things. But like travel soccer is a huge blessing in this child's development right now. That's where God has called him to. That's a good place. Okay? It does it does it does create some busyness, but we everyone around it can see that this is a really good thing. For myself, I um, for myself, I, I didn't I wasn't thinking about you know what Jesus was calling me to as a senior. My parents weren't really thinking about that either. I was just thinking about getting into the best college possible and trying to get as much scholarship money as possible. Um, but, you know, s- competitive swimming was very demanding. But, man, my senior year, God did some major things in my life through my swim coach. Um, and, I-, I mean, it totally has shaped who I am uh, as far as, like, being a leader and being, like, not afraid to try things and to be bold. And, hey, you know, like, praise the Lord. It was it was in competitive swimming, not a Bible study, that God did something to really shape who I would be for the next year. 15 years. So what we what we really need to do is we just need to we need to partner with our child. We need to pray. We need to ask God for wisdom. It's one of the things in Scripture where we ask for wisdom. James one, we ask for wisdom. He's going to give it to us, and uh, and we need to discern what it is that God is calling your child to. Um, and so going to practical takeaways, the first thing here, number one, I'd say is tear it all down. I would I would throw everything that your child is involved with. I would, I, would, uh, I would tear it all down, and I would um, call it into question. 
And, and here's the thing. There's a temptation with this to go to the other extreme to say, you know what? We're quitting football today. We're going to drop the tutor. We're dropping out of choir. No more guitar lessons. And that, you know what? That's the answer. No, that's law. And this thing, that's the, 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 the similarity between that mentality and living under the law is you're all in control. Jesus is not in control. And so, so basically what we um, need to do is tear it all down for the sake of listening to what God's calling you to so that he is in control, so that the good shepherd can lead your child into pasture and into abundant life. Um, secondly, you need to be the parent. Here's what I mean by this. Uh, your child, I know that your, your six-year-old wants to make the 2016 Olympics. Um, but you as a parent are wiser and more mature and know that your child doesn't need to try you know, to run 50 miles a week as a six-year-old to try to make the Olympics and wherever they are. Where are the next Olympics? I don't even know. Who cares? Um, but anyhow, so I, this little story, I remember when I was a swim coach, I was a 19-year-old, and there was a kid, and he was eight, and he desperately wanted to uh, I think it'd be all county. And so he needed to shave time off of his 25-yard uh, backstroke in order to make all county. So his mom set up three weeks of private lessons every day, uh, every weekday for three weeks to um, shave time, to work on his backstroke start. Okay, this is an eight-year-old. And, and she would every day rationalize. She'd be like, he just wants it so bad, and he just wants it so bad, and we're going you know, to encourage it. And this is in addition to doing two practices a day. It's like, hey, look, no. <laughs> you're, you're doing 15 like, swim practices of some sort a week as an 8-year-old. That's screwed up. It's not healthy. Your child doesn't need to do that. And so you as a parent, even though your kid just may desperately want to do this or desperately want to achieve that, and I know, I get it, like, it, you know, geez, especially if you have a child who's not motivated, you are like, praise the Lord, my kid is self-motivated, and I don't have to, like, crack the whip or anything. You know, isn't that a blessing? But you also need to be a parent. You need to regulate it when, when it's wise. Um, number three, you need to be suspicious of yourself. This is probably more addressed to the dads. So dads, if you're listening to this recording online, you need to be suspicious of yourselves. Um, because, uh, you know, let's be honest, we all, especially men, we have our inadequacies and we're, we want to live them out through our kids, right? Um, and so, like, you know, baby Cam is four months old and I'm sitting there rocking him one night and uh, everyone's probably heard this story. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, wow, you know, we went to the, his three-month appointment he was born five weeks early, but he is still in the 100th percentile for height and weight. He's going to be a big boy. Look at those hands, right? So he's already going to be a big kid. And I'm like, you know, I bet you if we get him doing youth soccer early, uh, you know, work on that pedal coordination. Daddy didn't have it. Maybe he will. Granddaddy played college football. We can be like the Quanjo brothers who are on the line in Alabama. They played soccer all the way through ninth grade. Get him playing soccer. And then for his, you know, for, you know, to go to high school and then do a fifth year maybe at a boarding school, like a prep school up north, like maybe go to Andover. And maybe, you know, with the size, the foot coordination, a little exposure up there, maybe he'll get into an Ivy League school, right? Okay? So it's like, oh, wait a minute, Cameron, let's deconstruct that a little bit. You were a pretty good athlete, not a great athlete. Um, you know, you went to a good college, you went to Wake Forest, but you didn't go to an Ivy League school. And, you know, and it's just not, you know, basically what are we doing? I'm trying to, you know, basically let my child uh, go to the cross to, you know, make me 
complete. And that's just nonsense. So, you know, a lot of times it, it's like, I, and I, I've, I've seen this a lot when I coached, like Johnny just wants it so bad. I'm like, horse feathers, Johnny doesn't want it. Johnny doesn't want to be here. Yet you want it for your child. So anyhow, we need to be suspicious of our own sin and our ability to seduce ourselves into trying to vicariously live out things through our kid. Um, number four, we need to seek and listen to the Lord with your child. Okay, look, here's what, here's what we're gunning for in the church. We are gunning for um, disciples, people who follow Jesus, right? That's the, point of the whole, that's the point of the church, to make disciples who God brings forth his kingdom and glorifies himself through. Um, and so, boy, talk about awesome opportunity to teach your child what it means to follow Jesus. To like, hey, I know you're in the fourth grade, or I know you're in the seventh grade, or I know you're in the tenth grade. Like, before this year, before registration, let's sit down and let's pray about how many AP classes you really need to take. Or let's pray about... Um, how far you want to take swimming. Um, let's pray about whether or not you're, you know, do you really need to be in three Bible studies? Like one, one might cover it, you know? And so, but I would do that with your child because in that you're, you're, you're partnering with them. I mean, you need to listen to your child. Your, your child is, you know, your child has gifts and has desires and interests. And, um, and so, so anyhow, I, I encourage that to be the thing that really the most practical thing we do is to pray with our child and discern God's will for them in these practical matters. Um, and, uh, and by the way, you're the parent. So that means if you and your husband are like, no, this is not, I, we just do not feel peace about him playing football. And I don't know, that's kind of a toughie. I don't know. Y'all figure that one out. Um, uh, let's see here. But I guess what I'm saying is I think I would trust your, as, as parents, I would trust your intuition over your child's. That's just my opinion. Um, one example here, I know, before we do the panel, um, I know a family, their, their son is a really good football player. He's a great athlete. He just doesn't really like it that much. And it's the kind of deal where, like, when he said he wasn't going to play football, people were like, you're not going to play football. Like, you're the star. Like, how could you not play football, right? You have to do that. And they were like, no, you know, he really likes music more. You know, and that's where his gifts are, and um, that's where his joy is. And he just he doesn't play football anymore, and he just he does a lot with music, and it's good. But um, hey, you know, like think about what a witness it is to the power of the gospel for you as a Christian to say not not self righteously and not obnoxiously like I probably would, but to um, but to be able to say like, you know, we've kind of prayed about it, and we just uh, we we our family is pretty pretty booked, and we just don't think we're gonna do this thing this year. We just don't think he's going to do AP classes this year. We don't think, anyhow, that, I mean, that would really, that would really rattle some cages. Just, and, and it really would be very attractive to people to be like, wow, these people seem like they are free. They seem like, they feel like they, they're not like under some kind of bondage to be a certain way and to conform. Um, so anyhow, think about that. And then the last thing is look for the second coming. You know, the reality is there's just always going to be a tension. Like, it's still the fallen world. Um, Jesus hasn't come back. And so, you know, when, uh, you know you're going to come out of here probably with high hopes. Like, oh, yes. And then, you know, it, it's then reality is going to set in. And understand that, yeah, sure, like Christ is there to offer us freedom in life. And, you know, we're still sinners and the world's still fallen. And, uh, you know, we can just kind of live in the tension that there will be a day when things are perfect. And that will be when Jesus comes back. But until then, you know, our expectations should probably be pretty realistic. <laughs> so, anyhow, um, I'll tell you what. I'm going to have three parents come up, uh, Tanya, Marilyn, and Todd Liscom. And um, this is, by the way, it's like 1020 right now. If you um, 
if you need to leave right now or you need to leave it right at 10.30, it's not going to be considered rude if you just get up and walk out. No problem at all. Um, because if this goes after, if, if people want to continue to talk after 10.30, I'm totally cool with that. Um, but, okay, so here's the first question I have. Uh, first question is, practically speaking, what, what, are the, uh, what does the overbooking look like for your family? Or what has it looked like? Tanya has three children who are af out of high school, now one who's in. Todd has a child who just entered college, has an elementary age and a high school age. Marilyn has an elementary age and a middle school age. So good spectrum here. But what, is it, what does it practically look like for your family? 